0: What you think a culture would look like that is experiencing the wrath of God. Think about it for a moment. What comes to your mind? Darkness, poverty, children living on the streets, jails overflowing, disease, Addiction abounding, corrupt, please? Maybe. But this morning we're going to learn that a culture that is experiencing the wrath of God is actually a culture that will be sexually immoral and confused. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Sounds all too familiar. We're in a series this morning on the sinfulness of sin. We've been looking at Romans 1 to 3. And where have we been so far? Well, the thesis statement, the main point of the book of Romans that he will use to drive his argument home, comes in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, where he says he's not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation, and in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Then Paul dives into bad news, starting in verse 18, and he does so all the way until the middle of chapter 3. But I want you to see what he does. He takes a break. So he says there in 117, the righteousness of God is revealed, what we need, what God demands, perfect righteousness that we can not attain, but that we get through the gospel through Jesus Christ. He takes a break starting in 118 all the way to 3, chapter 20. And then notice in chapter 3, verse 21, he picks back up with the righteousness of God. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So chapters 118 to 320 are really preparation for the righteousness of God. In our section, 118, and another section we'll see in chapter 3, are particularly bleak. They're hard. So these types of verses why preachers don't preach through the book of Romans. But we don't skip verses here at Southside, even when it steps on our toes and is politically incorrect. These verses describe the descent into depravity. As I was prepping. I read a story about a, a college minister on a campus in the Northeast, and he took this section, chapter 118, to the end of the chapter, and he removed the verse numbers and he changed the wording a little bit, made it a little bit more vernacular, and passed it out. And uh, the school authorities got a hold of it, and we're infuriated, and we're going after the author, whoever wrote this letter. Well, it was God the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul. But I understand nobody, this isn't easy. I don't delight in these kinds of sermon. No one delights in talking about the wrath of God. No one, never. It's never been the case. Starting in the second century, there was this heretic named Marcion, and he took Romans 118, and in his translation, he actually removed those two words, of God. The wrath of God is revealed, and he took off of God to try to say it wasn't actually God's wrath. People prefer a God who is only loving. They don't like a holy God. They want a God really made in their own image, who just exists to meet their needs, a genie in the bottle God, a sky in the fairy God, one who's here just to make our life wonderful, just to give us our best life now. It's the American gospel. As H. Richard Niebuhr warned us, we now preach a God without wrath who takes people without sin to a kingdom without judgment thanks to the ministry of a Christ without a cross. Well, if we're faithful to Scripture, we can't and mustn't do that. Let's look at Romans. I want to read the full context one sixteen through the end of the chapter, if you've got a pew Bible, it should be around page eight eighty-three. Romans 1.16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Four, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And here we come to our passage for this morning. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. To the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason... Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Let's pray. Father, we need your help this morning. So much of what we read from you, this is from you. This is your truth. This is your word. So much of your truth is belittled, mocked, hated in our world today. Would you give us hearts to respond in humility to your truth, knowing that you are the creator of the world and you know best, you are wiser than we are. May we submit to your word. Thank you for your clarity, thank you for the truthfulness and the honesty of the word. You don't show us what we might think we need, you tell us for sure what we need and it leads us to the gospel of grace that we might celebrate. Help us this morning, we pray. Build your church through your word, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So from Romans 1, 24 and following, I want us to consider three ways God's wrath is being revealed. Number one, he's giving people up to impurity. Number two, giving people up to dishonorable passions. And then number three, giving people up to a debased mind. So first, God gives them up to impurity. We see that in Verses twenty-four and twenty-five, let's read them again. Romans one twenty-four. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Anytime a passage says, Therefore, we ought to ask what is the therefore therefore? And we know from last week what it's there for. Look again at verse twenty two. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged. We see three exchanges in this passage. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Because unbelievers have exchanged the glory of God for idols, because of idolatry, God gave them over to their sin. This is hard truth. This is unpopular. But it says it three times. Look there. It's right there in verse 24. God gave them up. Look at verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up. Verse 28. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. Our God is rich in patience and rich in mercy. But he's also holy. And that patience runs out. We see that in this passage. He gives people what they want if they refuse to turn to him. And it says here, he gave them up in the lusts of their hearts, their sinful desires. One commentator translates this word over desires, and that's really the problem, right? Desires in and of themselves aren't problematic. It's when we desire something too much. It's what St. Augustine called inordinate loves. We love the wrong things too much. That's the problem. It's what the Bible calls covetousness. It's one of the big ten. It's the ninth commandment. And it gets to that heart level, that motive level, that desire level, both in Colossians and Ephesians, Paul says that covetousness is idolatry because what we most want is our God. That person or that thing that we desire so much that we'll sin against God, we'll put God in the backseat that we might attain it. Or that person or that thing that we will put God aside if we don't get it. It says, God gave them up in these over-desires, these sinful lusts of their hearts to impurity. It's a broad term referring to all sorts of impurity. But here he tells us the dishonoring of their bodies in verse 24. The degrading of their bodies. Our bodies were meant for purity, for honorable things. I love Hebrews 13. It puts it this way. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed, which is where our bodies go, be held in honor. Let it be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. God created us as physical beings. We are embodied creatures, and what we do with our bodies matters to God. We're going to see that. Skip over to chapter 6, Romans. We finally get into some good news and and how we're to live for the Lord. And notice what he says in Romans chapter 6, verse 12. When it comes to our bodies, After talking about the gospel in the first 11 verses, he says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Don't let sin reign in your body. To make you obey its, your body's passions. Verse 13, do not present your members, and I think that's talking about body parts, your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments of righteousness. What we do with our bodies matters to the Lord. First Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 3 says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's God's will for your life. That each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Those who know God control their bodies. Those who don't, do not. So God gives them over to this this dishonoring of their bodies. And then... In verse 25, he basically repeats himself, says what he says in verse 23. God gave them up to impurity. Why? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. So notice the structure here 22 and 23. People exchanged God's glory for idols. Therefore, God gave them up. Why did He give them up? Verse 25. Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Remember last week, they know the truth. They just suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They deceive themselves. God gave them over because they worshiped and served created things. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. They didn't honor God as God. They honored other things. Again, created things, idols. And they worshiped them. Someone or something was supreme in their desires and their affections other than God. They worshipped. In other words, they didn't love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And not only do they worship these idols, worship these created things, it says they also serve them. And, of course, worship and service go together. The words are actually related. You serve what you worship. And as Jesus warned us, you can't serve two masters. In that context, Matthew 6 is talking about money. See, whatever you worship, you will serve. And remember, all people worship. We saw that last week. Everybody worships. Everybody serves. Everybody has a Lord. Every single person lives for someone or something. That great theologian Bob Dylan put it, you've got to serve somebody. And you will. Whether it be success or greed or materialism, lust for achievement, approval, pornography, desire for power, for control, anger, addiction, car, house, that perfect family... Pleasure. Everybody has a Lord. Everybody is a worshiper. David Foster Wallace, the writer, not too long before he took his own life, about about 13 years ago, in a commencement speech, here's what he told the graduating class of Kenyon College. He said, everybody worships. He said, the only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason or maybe choosing some sort of God, lowercase g, or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power. You'll end up feeling weak and afraid. You'll, you'll need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is they're unconscious their default settings, end quote. Everybody worships. Everybody has a Lord, either the one true creator or we worship and serve the creation rather than the creator. And don't miss the connection here. Idolatry leads to immorality. Our over-desires for the wrong thing lead to further rebellion. The order of our loves determines the direction of our lives. In other words, you will live for what you love most. That's true of every person. And if you're not a Christian, whatever it is will betray you. It will, to use Wallace's words, eat you alive. If it's things, they're going to break down. As the Lord said, moth will come in and eat. Rust will destroy. Thieves will steal. If it's people, they will let you down. The Poet Oscar Wilde summed it up well. He said, when the gods, lowercase g, when the gods wish to punish us, they answer our prayers. Idolatry leads to immorality. And specifically here in these verses, a false view of God leads to a false view of sexuality. I can't think again. if think about American media. A false view of God leads to a false view of sexuality. Where you see a life given over to impurity, you see someone who has not honored God as God. And, of course, all this is rooted in the fall. It's all in Genesis 3. What did they do? They worshiped and served the creation rather than the creator. Remember, the creation comes in. They were called to rule, have order over the created order. And he comes in and says, God's a liar. It's basically what he says, right? You will not surely die. You should be like God. And so they serve the creation rather than the creator. Then in verse 25, there at the end, Paul ends with this little spontaneous doxology. Rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. He just can't help himself. He needs to bless the Lord. And I think he has this to underlie the folly of what it is to exchange created things for the creator. I mean, just think about how foolish that is. It's only the creator who's blessed forever. Unlike every other object of service and worship, only the Lord is truly worthy of service and worship. And only the Lord will endure forever. Friends, if you don't take anything else from this sermon this morning, take this. Spend your life on that which will last forever. Really two things. The word of God and the people of God. Prioritize in your life the things that will last forever. So he gives us over second then. Gives people over to dishonorable passions, verse 26. Here we come to some of the most controversial verses in the Bible, in our current era anyway. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. God gives them over to dishonorable passions, to shameful lusts. And then he tells us what these are. These dishonorable passions they pursued, their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Now, I just want you to know uh, increasingly there are Bible teachers and Bible scholars that want to basically affirm same-sex marriage. And some of them are honest and say, you know what, we're, we're setting aside scripture, we're going with our own experience. Some of them are not as honest. And they try to get the Bible to affirm their position. And one of the things they will say here is contrary to nature means contrary to your nature. And so if you are heterosexual, don't act contrary to your nature. If you're homosexual, don't act contrary to your nature. But that's not what this verse is saying. It's a nice Western Enlightenment individualistic view of what's being taught here. It's not what Paul means by contrary to nature. You can't read my nature into these verses. What he means here is contrary to the created order. Contrary to nature means contrary to nature. To the fixed way of things in creation. That's the way Paul always used these words. Contrary to the natural way God has made us to be intimate. I mean, just consider the anatomy involved here. I don't want to be crude, but there's a certain way of things in nature. Consider the procreative process. It's really not that complicated. I don't want to give you a a birds and the bees talk here, but God made certain things to happen certain ways in nature. But these people are acting contrary to nature. We act according to nature when we behave in accordance with the intentions of our creator. And his intentions are one man with one woman for a lifetime. We see this very clearly at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2. And we see it very clearly in the teaching of Jesus. Let me read Matthew chapter 19. Our Lord says this, have you not read... By the way, just note the uh, authority of Scripture in Jesus' life. Have you not read? Don't you know the Bible? Have you not read, the Lord of Lords says, that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, quotes Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. There it is. That's the creator's intentions for sexuality. These are contrary to nature. Women exchanging natural relations for other women, but not just the women, it's the men as well. The men gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for each other. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. If there was a really rigid translation of what's going on here, it would say men in men committing shame. And what is this due penalty? Well, he doesn't specify. It just says in themselves. One can speculate When we think about the host of relational and emotional and physical problems that homosexuality entails that no one likes to talk about. And the statistics are dreary, even for places where there are no restrictions on homosexuality. All sorts of problems, emotional, physical, spiritual, mental. And Paul says this is their due penalty. Necessary penalty penalty because god is holy and he cannot allow his created order and will not allow it to be so violated without there being just punishment. It's what these verses say here very clearly this is hard right but let's agree to this this is very clear here very clearly the bible condemns homosexuality as it does every time it's mentioned in scripture The scripture speaks with one voice on this topic. In the fall, I did a whole sermon on this topic. If you want to go back and listen to that, we spend more time on it. 2,000 years of church history has been unanimous. It is only recently that there has been division on this topic because God has been so clear in his word. One of the main ways Bible scholars also try to evade this passage is say, well, this isn't talking about what we think of. This is talking about a, a reality called pederasty. Pederasty was a very common practice in first century Rome where it was a relationship, an intimate relationship between an older man and a younger boy. And they said that's what is condemned here, nothing else. But that doesn't work. That's not in this passage. That's what we call eisegesis, reading into the text. What we want to do is exegesis, come from out of the text. What is here? We don't want to read our agenda into what is here. And it just doesn't work for three reasons. Number one, it mentions lesbians as well. And there is no record in the ancient world of older woman, younger girl relations. It's just not there. Second, in verse 27, he says they were consumed with passion for one another. This isn't rape, this isn't being forced, this is mutual. And then third, there was a word for pederasty. Paul knew it. He could have used it if that's what he was referring to. It's not here. It's not in the text. Paul is here talking about male and female homosexual relations. And friends, you already know this, but this is considered hate. What I'm telling you this verse means is considered hate today. And I think it's only going to get worse. You know, if you look historically at the way persecution goes, it typically starts Uh, verbal. I think we're getting there uh, more and more. Then it moves typically financial in terms of persecution. I think I'll see that in my day where churches that won't affirm same-sex marriage will be penalized financially, lose tax-exempt status, that sort of thing. And then thirdly, physical. I don't know if I'll see that in my day or not, but things have progressed really quickly, but you just need to know this is considered hateful, right? McLemore, great prophet of pluralism, same love, If you preach hate at the service, those words aren't anointed. That holy water you soak in has been poisoned. Love is patient. Love is kind. That song is the ethos of our day. You preach hate. That's what I'd be called for doing what I'm doing right now. But what you need to know is it's the opposite. The opposite is the case. It is the most loving thing we can do to tell the truth. Let me read from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, O Christians in America. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. God's word is very clear. What we do with our bodies sexually can determine our destinies eternally. And if we teach contrary to what God's words teaches here, if we approve what God so clearly forbids, we could be sending people to hell. To deceive God's people or others is actually what really constitutes hate. If we believe God's word and we believe eternity, it's the most loving thing we can do to tell the truth about this issue. Eternity is clearly at stake. Remember what's going on here in the context. Paul's bringing this up, not because it's the worst sin, as we just read in 1 Corinthians 6. It's one of many. We're going to read a little bit later. It's one of many. What he's doing right here is bringing up this sin as a uniquely clear example of how unnatural it is. Just like it's utterly unnatural to worship and serve the creation rather than the creator. That's the point. Just so it is unnatural for women to be with women and men to be with men. Just as worshiping created things rather than the creator is fundamentally wrong and unnatural, so homosexuality is inescapably unnatural, contrary to nature, contrary to the fixed way of things in creation. God's word says so. Our biology and anatomy clearly demonstrate this. And in the Christian landscape, there's really two opposing errors of how we, we, maybe three, maybe the first error is people just avoid it altogether and assume that they're wiser than God and know better than God. There's uh, two errors within those who address it. One is the self-righteous conservative who is on the hobby horse all the time condemning homosexuality, meanwhile turning a blind eye to such sins as obesity and gossip, which is mentioned a little bit later. It's easy to point at sins like this that we have no relation to, abortion and homosexuality typically. And so you have the the self-righteous conservative judge. Then on the other hand, you've got the more progressive. And what they will do is they will elevate culture above Scripture and say, well, now we know. Anytime you hear that, yellow flags ought to go up. We don't want either of those extremes. We want to be right in the middle. We want a gospel-centered truthfulness where we're not standing over anybody, but we're all together at the foot of the cross. We can't condemn anyone else for any other sin. There but for the grace of God go we. We are all on our knees before the cross in need of grace. All sinners in need of grace before a mighty Savior who saves any and all who come to him in faith and repentance third way that God's wrath is being revealed here in these verses is that God gives them up to a debased mind in verse 28. He says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. God's given people over to their sinful desires. He's given them over to dishonorable passions and to a depraved mind. This is what it looks like when God's wrath is being poured out. Impurity, dishonorable passions, and depraved minds. Here we have a play on words. A real rigid translation would be something like this. They did not approve God to have in their knowledge, so God gave them up to an unapproved mind. And he says, they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. They snuffed him out. To have God in our knowledge would be to acknowledge him and to respond to him and his will and his ways, but they don't. And so God hands them over to a worthless mind. We saw how sin affects the mind last week. Look again at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Again, sin, without repentance, sin stupefies. Remember how God described the Ninevites at the end of the book of Jonah? Saying, you need to go preach. These poor Ninevites don't have a clue. They're Blind in their sin. They don't even know their right hand from their left hand. Ephesians 4. This was all of us before Christ saved us. Now this I say in testifying the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding. Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They became They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Worthless minds, futile thinking, darkened understanding, ignorant, hard-hearted. Here's how 1 Corinthians 2 talks about the natural person. In other words, the unbeliever opposed to the spiritual person. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. This was all of us at some point. Why? Because they're foolish. They're folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. God gives over to a depraved mind. Here's how the message paraphrases verse 28. Since they didn't bother to acknowledge God, God quit bothering them and let them run loose. Look at verse 29. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. He mentions all manner of unrighteousness here. It's not just homosexuality, it's all kinds of problems. In fact, he has some 22 vices listed here. They really defy categorization, but he starts with some general ones. Unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. He mentions some relational sins, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. He mentions Sins of the mouth, which all too often in church settings are those quote, respectable sins like gossip. Slander. Slander are those who whisper behind closed doors. They don't speak to people, they speak about people. Those who stab in the back. Backbiters. What an image that is. Backbiters. Several relating to pride. As the sage said, the shirt of the sinful soul put on first, taken off last. Notice what's there in the mix, though. Kids, put your crayons down for a moment. Disobedient to parents. It's thrown in the mix there. Paul, writing the book of Second Timothy, he mentions a, a list that's kind of similar. He says this, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money. Again, we're talking about inordinate loves. What we love most will determine the direction of our lives. They'll be lovers, not of God, but of self. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Children, again, look up here. Obeying your parents is vitally important to God. Bible has a whole lot of commandments. Old Testament, 613. New Testament, over 2,000. It's a lot that God wants us to do, but children, it can really be summed up in three things God wants you to do. Number one, trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You can never be good enough. Jesus was good enough on your behalf. Trust in the Lord. Number two, love people. Love your neighbor. Number three, obey your parents. Obey your parents. It is vitally important to God that you obey your parents. Don't find yourself in this list. Ruthless, foolish, faithless, heartless. It's a bleak picture here, isn't it? That's what sin does. Sin is so destructive. Sin makes us less than human. Sin causes us to be subhuman. Sin is a negation of humanity. It's against what God created us to be. Look at verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree... That those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Again, they know. They know. They know what God demands. They know God's righteous decree. They know he's there. We saw that in verse 21. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They know about God's judgment. They know that those who practice such things deserve to die. They know, as we'll see here in a few chapters, that the wages of sin is death. Their conscience condemns them, but what they do in response is not submit, but suppress. Though they know, they do it anyway. And not only that, they commend others who do the same. And again, isn't this American culture? Just look on social media at the comments when someone comes out. It's celebration. so happy for you. Now you can be free, be you, even if it leaves behind a wife and children. Not only do they do them, they give commendation to those who practice such things. Not in the church. In the church, we're to be a counter-cultural community. And we in America today are getting to feel that and experiencing that in a way that our parents and grandparents didn't have to. The church is different counterculture. We're going to see that as we unfold Romans. In fact, when we get to Romans chapter 12 in 2023, we're going to see the undoing of Romans 1. Romans 12 is the undoing of Romans 1. There's a lot of word plates here, especially on the word approve. So in Romans chapter 1, we, uh, we are not those who dishonor their bodies. Romans chapter 12, we present our bodies to the Lord, which is our spiritual worship. We're not conformed to this world's We're transformed by the renewal of our minds. We no longer have an unapproved mind, but a mind that is being renewed, that by testing we may approve. So not a depraved mind, a a renewed mind, that we might approve. Same word, what is the will of God? Before we had minds that didn't approve God in our knowledge. Now we seek to approve his will and his ways. Romans 12 is the undoing of Romans 1. We all find ourselves in Romans 1 in some way or another. Before Jesus Christ. And Christ comes in and makes all the difference. Again, remember the context. Holy Spirit through Paul introduces what he's talking about in Romans and he starts in Romans 1, 16 and 17, the gospel. The good news. The fact that God requires perfect righteousness because he's holy and none of us can attain it. But through the gospel, through faith from first to last, we can receive the gift of righteousness. That's Romans 1, 16 and 17. And then he takes a break from Romans 1, 18, where we're in the middle of, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. And then he's going to come back to his main theme. He's got to talk about the bad news, though, for a while before he talks about the good news. The good news isn't really good news until we understand the bad news. We really won't glory in the gospel of grace until we've understood the depth of our depravity. What God is doing here through the book of Romans is moving us to the end of our rope. That's where his office is. He's showing us that we lack the righteousness of God before he shows how God provides it through faith. I read from 1 Corinthians 6, but I stopped short. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. None of us are too far gone, and such were some of you. Maybe you're here and you find yourself in Romans 1. You don't know the Lord. You can trust him today. You can trust him where you are. When you see your sin Christ offers the gospel. Christ offers free and full forgiveness to any who will trust in him. Scripture says when you do that, the first way to go public is through believer's baptism. If you want to do that, if you have questions, there's nothing we enjoy talking about more. For those of us who are believers, again, we all find ourselves in Romans 1 in some way or another, and God has redeemed us. God has freed us. We've been washed. We've been sanctified. We've been justified by the Lord Jesus Christ, and so we can respond and grateful singing for what he's done. Though we were lost in darkest night, we were hopeless The God would own a rebel like us. And if he had not loved us first, we would refuse him still. He looks upon our helpless state and he leads us to the cross. We have all we need in Jesus Christ.